All right, welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight's class is on the Soviet-Afghan War and the truth of Afghanistan history. And we'll be studying from Philip Vinovsky's Washington's Secret War Against Afghanistan, which was written in 1985. And we will discuss the history of Afghanistan that is often whitewashed by imperialism. This is uh, Angelo D'Angelo. I just wanted to say that I lived through that whole period. It happened during my young adulthood. And what happened in 1979 was happening around the world. There was a revolution, an uprising in Afghanistan against the government. The government was an autocratic, a monarchy type of government. Very interesting the way the West is shedding crocodile tears over the last monarchy that's in the planet. This is 2022, the 21st century. And in 1979, they were getting rid of monarchies. This one was in Afghanistan, including 1979, the revolution to get rid of Samosa in Nicaragua, the same year, by the way, comrades. It was a big year, 1979, for people overthrowing the yoke of oppression. So I think this is important that we understand what happened. Thank you. All right, we'll get started with our reading. We'll start with the antique land. There are several hundred secret passageways, one account puts it, through the mountain range dividing with the help of the Duran line, but not separating Afghanistan from Pakistan. Every fall through these ancient passageways, which curl upon each other like veins in an old cheese, tens of thousands of nomads, mainly Pushtun, but including Baluchi, follow the ghosts of their ancestors to the grazing grounds of what is known to us as Pakistan, and the following spring back to what is known to us as Afghanistan. But if you were to ask them who they are, Afghans or Pakistanis, they would look blankly at you, shaking their heads, for to them, whose allegiance today, as it had been for centuries, is to a tribal leader, neither Afghanistan nor Pakistan is a clear reality. They have no state. They recognize no Durand line. Their state is where the grass grows green. So it was when Marco Polo found them over 100 years ago. The mountains afford pasture for an innumerable quantity of sheep, which ramble about in flocks. So it still was to Karl Marx in 1857, who said that Afghanistan was a mere poetical term for various tribes and states, pushing their herds before them, sheep, horses, camels, cattle. They go from pasture to pasture. On their way, they are waylaid by history, which comes to them as a violent and alien intrusion. Out of those mysterious spaces beyond the mountains, Strange monsters periodically leap at them, an Alexander of Greece who admired their horses, a Tamerlan, a Genghis Khan from far off Mongolia, tormented them for a time and then were gone. They resumed, then, their timeless caravanserai, during which infants of every variety were dropped from humans, sheep, and camels, without stopping the motion of their lives. All they knew of history was that it came to them as an interruption in this back and forth shuttling between green and green. In the 19th century, 
other historic monsters from British India leaped out on them. This time their names were Lord Palmerson, Disraeli, Winston Churchill, Lord Curzon, Sir Mortimer Durand. And after these had been shaken off again, they went their way, anxious to get out of the mountains into the pasture before the first snows fell. But these Pushtun shepherds were equal to all of history's surprises, cruelties and treacheries. They were to know kings and emperors, traders from far Cathay and the near Indies had passed through their valleys along the Silk Route. Hellenic culture had touched them. Buddhism arrived from India, but had fallen to Islam by the seventh century. But good or bad, whatever befell them, these nomadic pastoral peoples understood how to deal with it. And in the end, they absorbed their tormentors as the immemorial movement of time absorbed their own history. Their country was a vast natural forces with many narrow defiles, which as Marco Polo had noted, protected them against any foreign power entering with hostile intentions. They shook all of the past countries away like water, except this one, the 20th. In April, 1979, when Zbigniew Brzezinski, then President Carter's national security advisor, though not exactly advisor to Cyrus Vance, was asked by an interview from the U.S. News and World Report why the Carter administration had been afraid to use American military power in crisis areas. The national security advisor very reasonably, not yet having seen arcs that were unstable in that area of the world, replied, I feel it the criticism of cowardice, was not well-founded. The fact of the matter is that in the crises of the last two years, circumstances clearly mitigated against a direct display of presence of American power. As in the case of Afghanistan, the area was remote from the reach of U.S. power. But that same year, the Afghanistan that had been remote in April had miraculously, mainly through the miracle of television, become near and menacing. The greatest threat to peace since World War II, Carter said by December. The question arises, therefore, what had happened to chase the hippies out of Afghanistan one year and bring Carter in soon after? Why did Afghanistan become such a swelling wound allegedly poisoning the conscience of the world precisely on the night of December 20th or 27th, 1979? On that night, a certain Hafizullah Amin, known in the prince of Western world as a hardcore communist, had come to power over the body of Noor Muhammad Taraki, also a hardcore communist. A scant four months before had himself gone to his God, as Kipling would put it in an earlier time, before a firing squad. Oddly enough, there had been very few in Afghanistan itself to mourn his going. In fact, there had been dancing in the streets of Kabul when his death became known. But surprisingly, there was one man in far-off America who had never been to Afghanistan, who hated all communists, but now shed a public tear for one, and a hardcore communist at that. He was an unlikely mourner at that beer, but his grief was genuine. His name was Jimmy Carter. Why, as Artemis Ware asked at an earlier occasion, these weeps. Why should the capitalist-minded Carter weep for the communist-minded Amin? This was surprising, indeed, as surprising as to be told 
that a defender of Islam had been born in that born-again Baptist, and surprising, too, to hear him declare that Amin was the legitimate president of Afghanistan, at whose demise the free world should stand at respectful attention. Though it was Amin who had obviously murdered his friend and teacher, Nor Muhammad Taraki, only months before, the man who had had a hand in the assassination of Adolf Dubbs, the American ambassador to Afghanistan. Taraki's widow, released from prison, had cried bitterly in a letter to President Carter. I am angered and shocked by the fact that you are trying to protect this criminal and murderer, Amin, this plotter, this apostate, who was not averse to using the most insidious methods. He killed my husband. That same evening of the day that Babrak Karmal gave his first interview to the Western press in Cheseltoon Palace in January 1980, I watched a replay of that interview in which I had asked a strange question on television at the Kabul Hotel. When Babrak Karmal cried to the men from BBC, you are the face of British imperialism. Three times you got a bloody nose from the Afghans. A cheer broke out from the small group of hotel workers who had left their tables uncleared and floor unwashed to come and listen. The fears of real people explain ghosts, the ghosts of British imperialism had been conjured up by Carmel not only because he feared the British, the British no longer had their old power. A new power had come to haunt them. And we're going to break for questions here. What the author says in this book is interesting. How many times have revolutions happened in history where one section of the revolution becomes more extreme than another section of the revolution. Let's go to the French Revolution. Let's go to the Russian Revolution. There was actually one revolution at two parts, the Kerensky part, and then the part with Lenin. That was the Russian one. Let's take the other revolution in Grenada. I think it was in 1980. That revolution had two parts also. The New Jewel Movement, was led by Maurice Bishop, but there was another person in the leadership who was an ultra leftist. He actually worked with overthrowing Maurice Bishop indirectly. The ultra left historically always does this. They wind up on the same side as the right. So in Afghanistan, Taraki led the revolution. A guy named Amin, overthrew Taraki, said Taraki was too mild, too conservative. And Amin changed everything to the extreme. He took away the Afghan flag and he made a red flag, which sounds good to communists on the surface, but think about it. This was a society run by mullahs, by Islam, fundamentalism, to bring that society in two or three years into a society of socialism was impossible. You have to go through a period of building it. And the ultra left never does that. They just go to the extreme right away. And what happened in the case of, of Grenada with Maurice Bishop, they overthrew the revolution. The US came in and helped overthrow it. What happened in Afghanistan? 
same exact thing. The CIA came in and worked with the religious mullahs to overthrow what happened there. Remember, they were called Mujahideen, if you know your history. And that's what happened in all these revolutionary movements. You know what happened in France? The revolution, basically, they started to eat each other, the leaders. There's one <laughs> side was Robespierre and, you know, the other side. So in every revolution, we seem to have that. I think this book is very well written because it shows that if we go too quickly in a revolutionary situation, we could wind up destroying what we're trying to build. That's all. Thank you. I just wanted to say about um, the Afghan revolution. What's really interesting is that this was a revolution that didn't occur like because of the trade union movement, like we saw in the Soviet Union or the First World War. It occurred because the king, the kingdom of as uh, of uh, Afghanistan, was basically told by the CIA that he had to purge his military of communists. Now, why were there communists in the Afghan military in the first place? Afghanistan during the Cold War, prior to the Sour Revolution, it, it tried to be neutral. It tried to be in between both the West and the East. So a lot of the military of Afghanistan was trained in the Soviet Union, and a lot of them became communists and studied Marxism-Leninism. As a result, this created a divide between the king and his military. The CIA decided to exploit this divide and basically told the king that he had to get rid of his military. He had to purge his military of communists. This for, in the face of all this, the comrades in the People's Democratic Party who were organized around these military officers decided that they didn't want to get liquidated. So they did a revolution. They did it preemptively. And they, this is how the Sour Revolution happened. And it, it's really notable that the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which was the Communist Party, it was very prominent in the urban seconds. centers and among the military officers. Now, what you see with Amin in particular and the ultra-left faction of the People's Democratic Party is that they alienated the countryside. The countryside was the majority of Afghanistan, were peasants and farmers, and they were deeply religious. They were deeply socially conservative. And what happened with the ultra-left is that they managed to alienate this class of people and this group of people. And this ultimately spelled doom for the revolution in a lot of way, even though there was later attempts to remedy or correct the damage that Amin did. Thank you, comrades. This is an important topic for me because it hits really close to home. Um, although my family is from neighboring Iran, Afghanistan is essentially the little brother of Iran, as I, like, as I like to think about it. We were part of the same country at one point, and that's another story. But um, the ultra-left faction, what, what you need to understand is that the ultra-left faction of the PDPA were known as the Khalkis, the, uh, known as also in Farsi as the people. And then you had the Pachemis, which means the banner or the flag. And both of these factions of the PDPA really were products of the class divide of Afghan society. As the comrade alluded to, there is a class divide within Afghan society between kind of like the people in the cities and the rural Afghans. And the Pachemis were the people from the cities. So a lot of these 
guys came from like relatively landowning families. They studied in Western countries and the, the Khalkis were the people from the rural parts from the much more poor backgrounds. And Amin, I believe Amin was a Khalki himself and Tutaraki came from a Khalki faction, which is that, that kind of ultra left faction as well. And both of these factions of the PDPA, they never really got along. They they never got along. I'm, I mean, maybe there were some periods of unification. Able to do some things such as the w- women's liberation and stuff. But yeah, this was just, it was ultimately kind of like a split in the party that kind of where I feel like the party was never really united itself. So that's kind of what I wanted to say. Thank you. One of the things I found interesting is the beginning section. We we're talking about Afghanistan. And I think it's very important for us to know we're starting to, at least in the West, get a broader picture of the impact that colonialism had on Africa. And I think a lot of people are still lacking in knowledge of the impact that imperialism and colonialism had on the Middle East, particularly when we talk about these boundaries, right? And the way that, you know, these borders are drawn. And as the book is saying, you know, this is a society that still does not have a strong national identity in some areas you know there's some areas that are still very uh, tribal very local right this is a national development that's like way older this is something that we're comparing it to like you know european history is you know late stages medieval right where things are still very local and so i think this is important we understand the role that revolutions have to play is you have to understand that national characteristic you have to understand that the challenges that Afghanistan possesses trying to bring about a revolution. You have all these people moving in different directions as other comrades have been pointing out. But I think it's something we have to study when we look at other countries and look at their situations is these countries are all on different scales and they all have their own unique challenges, which is why those local parties have to make those important decisions. Thank you. 90 seconds. I would recommend that everybody, if you haven't already, study in depth Marxism and the national question by Stalin. Uh, it, it is very important to understand a state is not a nation. A kingdom is not a nation. Uh, this is very important to understand what Comrade Cody is talking about. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here uh, because explaining the exact definition of a nation within a Marxist framework would take a little bit of time. And, and I don't want to take up too much of that. Uh, but that being said, I would recommend that everybody study Marxism and the national question by Stalin. Uh, that's actually something we should have a class on within the next few months now that I think about it. Just a quick comment to build up, build off of what some of the other comrades have said. Like about a year ago, I was driving home from work and I listened to, I think it was uh, that NPR podcast through line. They did a, uh, a history of Afghanistan. And I remember them talking um, about how the, the dynamic of a Western backed monarchy you know, holding their, you know, they wanted to be progressive, they wanted to be liberal, you know, they wanted to be more Western, but it didn't really go beyond the the confines of Kabul, and then everything outside was agrarian and medieval, and this was a dynamic that went back to the turn of the century. When they got to talking about the revolution, they actually interviewed a man who had taken a part, taken part 
in the whole thing. And this was just a, a comment on the the frequent like uh, mischaracterization or trying to devalue what went down there. Because I think, if I remember correctly, the interviewer probably referred to the revolution as like a, a Soviet-backed coup. And the man was incensed and was emphatic. No, this was a legitimate, legitimate revolution. It was, it was very important to him to make that point. Thank you very much. We're going to go ahead and jump back to the reading now. It was a fact that newly born Afghanistan state owed much to its independence to the aid of the equally newborn Soviet state. Lenin accompanied his prompt recognition of Afghanistan as a sovereign state on March 27, 1919, with a message to Amanullah Khan. The establishment of permanent diplomatic relations between two great peoples opens up an extensive possibility of mutual assistance against any encroachment on the side of foreign predators on other people's freedom and other people's wealth. This policy declaration was then followed up by a series of cultural and economic treaties and continued down the years. They included agreements which rendered crucial assistance to the Afghans at critical moments in their early history, as when the Soviets allowed the Afghans to move their products duty-free over Soviet land when Pakistan, in June 1955, probably prodded by Dulles, closed its borders with Afghanistan thus denying passage to her goods through Pakistan to the Indian Ocean. It was an attempt to strangle the young country economically and force her to fall in with Dulles's grand design to outflank the USSR with hostile states. In 1932, the Soviets helped Afghanistan to withstand the worst of the World Depression by further extending commercial relations on a favorable basis. This aid had followed the signing of the Soviet-Afghan Treaty of Neutrality and Non-Aggression on June 24, 1931. This treaty, which stressed coexistence between states with differing social and economic systems, was based on the already elaborated Leninist concept that commercial and cultural relations between socialist and capitalist states, or feudal or any other kind of state, could continue peacefully and with mutual benefit. Soviet aid to Afghanistan always included experts and teachers and military advisors. It was therefore with such a history, no struggle for any Afghan patriot to understand that the very existence of his country as an independent country owed much to the Russian revolution and the socialist power it gave birth to. To most Afghans, therefore, the bear from the North, now that it came with a hammer and sickle, was no menace. Karmal would say, Soviet moral and material aid, including military assistance, is not something new in this country. It has been completely legitimate. At the Grand National Assembly, Loya Yirga, of 1334, which is 1945 on our calendar, under Sadar Muhammad Daud premiership, due to differences existing between Afghanistan and Pakistan, our people, including the Afghan clergy, endorsed in the traditional manner that in order to preserve its independence, territorial integrity, and set, settle its national problems, Afghanistan was entitled to ask for military help from a country it wanted to. So the 
Soviet military aid to Afghanistan is not a new matter. In the reign of the deposed King Mohammad Zahir, Afghanistan used to receive military assistance from the Soviet Union, and there were Soviet military advisors in Afghanistan. That's from the Kabul Times, January 8, 1980. In fact, Afghanistan's foreign policy was based from the very start on a continued friendship with the USSR, and from that positive beginning, the USSR had maintained a friendly relationship with every subsequent Afghan government. In World War II, though neutral, the Afghan government not only resisted the blandishments and threats of the Nazis to allow Hitler to use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack the USSR as well as India, but booted the Nazis out altogether at the request of the Soviet Union and Great Britain. There is no evidence available from any source whatsoever to indicate that the Soviets were not satisfied to accept Afghanistan permanently on their southern flank as a friendly, neutral, though not socialist, much as Finland later became, neighbor whose independence from Great Britain, then the USA, it would honor as long as the Afghans themselves honored it. This friendly policy remained in effect for 60 years. It was the Soviet Union which backed Afghanistan's entry into the UN in 1946. But the development of Pakistan into a tool of now hostile China, backed up by an even more hostile United States, aiming at disturbing the equilibrium in that part of the world by turning Afghanistan from a neutral to a pro-imperialist role changed everything. The discontented melange of Afghan ousted landlords, usurers, medieval obscurantists could have been easily contained in their efforts to win back their past power if Pakistan, under Zia Uhak, had refused to give them aid and comfort. Undoubtedly, the revolts they spawned domestically would have been short-lived if American power had not stepped in to support and refuel them and turned Afghanistan's internal troubles from a conflict as essentially local in nature and implication to one with international consequences. Thus, the Soviet presence in Afghanistan was not new nor arbitrary. The complication here is one of timing. The Soviet entry into Afghanistan at a means request took place at the same time, more or less, that the Karmal forces rose to overthrow Amin. And we're gonna break again for some questions, but before we go to hands here, one of the things I wanna point out is they brought up that China was hostile to Afghanistan. I wanna point out that some of the countries that actually helped with the Mujahideen and the opposition to a socialist Afghanistan, you have China, uh, backing both Maoist groups that were working alongside the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and the Mujahideen itself. And then you also have Iran supporting the Shia Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And on the other side, I mean, the Soviets and the socialist Afghans had some military support from East Germany and basically political support from a handful of other nations, mostly in the Warsaw Pact. And so I just wanted to point out that this is one of those conflicts in which China is wrong. Uh, China is working in a counter-revolutionary fashion. And uh, it's also like to point out more on the ultra leftists that have been brought up in Afghanistan. You have literal Maoist groups working against 
socialist Afghanistan, which while not perfect is, you know, a lot better than uh, failure. So with that, I'll go ahead and go to the hands that we have raised. Uh, you pretty much said what I was going to say. I was just wondering if we're going to go more in depth about the Maoist groups that uh, basically fought against us in the Afghan war. Like it's insane that they would help the Mujahideen. That doesn't even make sense. I think that, you know, possibly in the future, uh, we might be able to go more in depth on that. We might just be able to have uh, a class in the future about the different Maoist interventions and conflicts globally that played a really counter-revolutionary role. But that's probably not going to be for a little bit. But thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, of course, this was during a time when China was um, in its foreign policy just supporting whatever the opposite of the Soviet Union was doing. Um, and if somebody could ex expand on uh, why they think that is, that would be great. But I just wanted to ask, can I get the exact year for this? Uh, they said that the, the one person in Afghanistan was onto power and that, yeah. So the SAR revolution happens in 1978. And I believe in either late, late 1978 or early 1979 is when Mohammed Nur Taraki is killed. Uh, and he was killed by the uh, order of Amin's forces. And then Amin, uh, after requesting 15 times to the Soviet Union for military assistance, finally gets the Soviets to oblige. And so they send their assistance, but it happens right around the same time as Karmal's uh, Karmal forces uh, have Amin killed. And this is around December 27th, 1979. Uh, so this is basically the events that happened right before the 1980s began. And from that, the Soviet-Afghan war is precipitated. And the United States by 1978 is already propping up the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And we'll get to uh, that in a second. One of the big parts of history is the big new Brzezinski actually goes over and tells uh, the Mujahideen, and he's basically the national security advisor for Jimmy Carter. He tells them that uh, you know, their cause is right, their cause is just, uh, and God is on their side. And so just basically fuels their whole idea of the holy war against Soviet infidels. And of course, as we'll learn, it came back to bite us on the ass later. So in terms of why China was just backing anything anti-Soviet, it's essentially because they wanted control of the international communist movement was a really big part of it. And, and they did this all over the place. I mean, they backed the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot alongside the UK and the USA. Uh, they, they, funded, they, they were involved with multiple counter-revolutionary movements. And then look at the various Maoist movements that ended up springing up down the line. Gonzalo and the Shining Path. The Red Guard here in America, there have been multiple instances of them attacking and assaulting various other communist groups over petty differences, basically, not even anything that's worth fighting about. And so the tendency itself essentially results in a nonstop vying for power and control over the revolutionary movement. And what was happening in the Sino-Soviet split was essentially an international expression of that, where they wanted to control the international communist movement and wrest power from the Soviets over it. That is my understanding of their role in the conflict. However, Comrade General Secretary would probably know more than I would. Yeah, but I wanted to say that was right across the whole spectrum. 
in South Africa. They worked with a guy named Sovambi, who was funded by the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States, the CIA. And the Chinese were supporting him in the country of Angola. Okay, when Angola was trying, so this was common throughout the whole international spectrum. Wherever the Soviets were, the Chinese Mao, led by Mao at the time, were on the other side. And it was the same side as who? The US, every single time. You do know that Pinochet in Chile, when he came into Chile, uh, he was supported by uh, China. Everybody should Google this and find this out. Because the government of Chile, Allende, was pro-Soviet. I want to mention one thing before I finish. What Amin did was he closed all the mosques in a country that was heavily Islam. You do not do that tactically, but he did that tactically. It was obvious that by doing that, you were going to have the hatred of the people who were religious, who didn't have any ideology. You were going to now put those people on the side of the United States. That's exactly what happened. And that's what the ultra left does every single time. And Lenin said, it doesn't matter that you do it for good reasons. It's the objective results of what you do. If it hurts the working class, it's bad. And that's what the ultra left always does. They go on the, they come out with a certain view, but objectively it always helps reaction. I finished, that's it. Someone had earlier said that the revolution in um, Afghanistan was premature. And I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand what made it premature because I know that that was also something that was happening in the Soviet Union when they were fighting it is, you know, I, I believe it was like the Mensheviks that were saying, well, it, it's not time for a revolution. We have to wait until, you know, Germany and all those other places have revolutions. So what were the particular characteristics of Afghanistan that made it um, a premature revolution? Thank you. I don't know I can... if it's really classified as premature, but we do know something that they had a good relation with the Soviet government, the Afghanistan government led by a monarchy, had good relations with the Soviet government. So, this idea that the revolution was instigated by the Soviets doesn't hold any water. The Soviets had no reason. It was a native-born revolution led by intellectuals who studied Marxism in the West. That's basically what happened. It was from a certain class. Yeah, if I could quickly elaborate. So what I meant by it being premature is that it didn't come up about like within like, you know, the trade union movement or like necessarily like the Afghan peasantry. It came about due to uh, the, the urban intelligentsia within Kabul and uh, military officers within the Afghan military that were facing extermination at the hands of the kingdom and the CIA. So it, it was basically a, it was an effort to preserve, you know, the People's Democratic Party and not end up dead. So that's what I mean by it being somewhat like premature, meaning that there wasn't like a mass basis among the Afghan peasantry, which made up the majority of the country. 
side fact i i actually do know some people in my local area where i'm from there's there is an afghan diaspora community and a lot of them if you talk to them are actually very pro um taraki and najbola who were the two uh who were the two moderate leaders of the afghan of uh, the people's democratic republic and it's really interesting how in america like you have you have some like diaspora communities who like are often like reactionary, but then you also have other communities that are very revolutionary. Like, and I found this particularly to be the case amongst Afghani Americans and especially uh, Ethiopian Americans. Uh, and I would also like to respond to Comrade Shelley's question. Uh, so what Comrade is saying uh, to my understanding is correct. And it's also a trend that's been demonstrated historically in other countries. Um, an example is Burkina Faso, uh, where they were essentially installed via military coup while Thomas Sankara was in prison, which he actually opposed due to the fact that it was not necessarily a mass movement, but instead a military installation. Uh, and so that is a it's essentially something that has happened in other places aside from Afghanistan, where it's kind of shown that basically no masses, no revolution. No trade unions, no revolution. Otherwise, it ends up being unsustainable. Yeah, so um, the comrade earlier stated that, um, you know, the revolution in Af Afghanistan happened because it was mostly from, like, the intelligentsia and, like, the military. Well, unfortunately, <clears throat> and this has also been stated as well earlier, Afghanistan has never been united as a as a nation unfortunately it's it's a afghan society is a society that has a lot of problems some of which have been exacerbated by the western imperialist powers but you know you have basically a problem of pashtun supremacy within the country which oppresses the other ethnic minorities such as the hazaras or the tajiks which actually surprising enough, I believe Babak Karmal was a Tajik, which was one of the ethnic minorities of Afghanistan. But, you know, I think one of the most important things about socialist revolution, if you look at like a country like Russia, was like the unity of everybody who fought in, and some people died for the revolution against the Tsar. But, you know, Afghanistan didn't have this. And, you know, I think that um, that is probably the reason as to why it may be, you know, for lack of a better term, made deemed premature. So, and the other thing I wanted to say also regarding uh, the Afghan diaspora, I think it really depends on who you talk to. Because, yeah, there are Afghans who are pro-Najibullah and pro-Taraki as well. And especially among like the Afghan boomer generation, for lack of a better term again. But there's also a lot of Afghans in the diaspora that are very pro-monarchy as well. So I just kind of wanted to state that. Um, yeah. One of the things I wanted to say tonight that I think was relevant with the first section is about monarchy. You know, we don't mourn monarchists. We're not the kind of people to mourn monarchists. Lizzie's in a box. Lizzie's in a box. And so... Um, and that's the same thing with Afghanistan. You know, we're not going to we're not pro monarchy, but for a long time, for the sake of peace and security in the region, the Soviet Union had a relationship uh, with that monarchy and helped to shield them from some of the other Western imperialism that was still coming from places like Britain, from with, you know, people like the uh, 
the queen. Uh, but I just wanted to say that real quick. No masses, so the revolution can't be sustained. And the ultra left factionalism, um, is this kind of what's happening in Chile right now with their constitution and whatnot? Are we sort of seeing that disintegrating because of that? The problem in Chile is that the constitution is being pushed by, um, it's not really a working class constitution in the way that like, you know, a dictatorship of a proletariat would pass it like a Stalin constitution. There has been no proletarian revolution in Chile. Um, this guy Boric in charge of Chile, he's not the best when it comes to just um, international politics and socialist politics. He called uh, our comrades in Venezuela, he called Maduro a dictator and he says it's a regime in Venezuela. So that can kind of tell you where he's coming from in terms of his quote unquote left wing politics. The leader Boric, he doesn't come out of the trade union movement. He doesn't come out of a communist party. He comes out of a student movement. By just by itself, without guidance and without leadership of a communist party. The biggest problems that I've seen, and I've talked with some Chilean comrades about the constitution, especially comrades in the Patriotic Party, which is the mass party of the um, Communist Workers Party of Chile, which is, you know, the Marxist-Leninist less reformist party. The biggest problem is that the constitution kind of puts the cart before the horse in, res in respect. It's very focused on not like solving the fundamental um, problems within Chilean society, such as inequality, such as material, the material conditions of the Chile masses, it's not being addressed in the constitution. It, it focuses a lot on like kind of like more student or like more middle class intelligentsia type issues. And it's kind of putting a, a cart before the horse. The regime that Pinochet established, all the infrastructure he set up, the state apparatus, the secret police, the military, all those, all that still exists in terms of the structures of the Chilean government. So, you know, if you're trying to implement like a constitution, you can't really do that while having those institutions. We're gonna go ahead and hop back into the reading here. So this is uh, well into the book, but this gets into the actual uh, Washington intervention and the war. So it says, arms to the rebels, no perhaps, and then Reagan. Hardly had word arrived in Washington that the Soviets had entered Afghanistan in December 1979. Then Brzezinski leaped to the microphone and told Zia that the U.S. was ready to offer him every kind of aid, including the use of force, if he felt he needed it. Carter, more cautious, promised that direct military assistance to those rebels might be possible later, but in the meantime, he wanted to build a chorus of international criticism of the Soviet movement. That was in the New York Times in late December 1979. Until that was done, Carter had to move with, the, with some circumspection and sending arms to the counter-revolutionaries in Afghanistan via Pakistan. So all references to such aid had to be roundabout. And in February, Harold Brown, then Secretary of Defense, made exactly the kind of roundabout reference that seemed to carry out the words of the popular song, your lips say no, but your eyes say yes to me. In Washington, Defense Secretary Harold Brown acknowledged today that rebels in Afghanistan may be receiving arms supplied to Pakistan by the United States, but said that it is the Soviet invasion, the Soviet involvement that causes the death and turmoil. In March, the Washington Post would come up with 
the United States is reported to have provided some covert aid, including weapons to rebels after the Soviet intervention in December. U.S. officials will not speak publicly of the effort, but declined to do so in talks with reporters yesterday. Drew Middleton, always described as having a direct pipeline into the inner recesses of the Pentagon, would write in July 1980, sources in the Pentagon say that the United States is providing arms to the insurgents on a limited basis. This seems to mean enough arms to keep the insurgents fighting in the field, but not enough to provoke Soviet retaliation against Pakistan across whose frontiers U.S. weapons would move to Afghanistan. White House officials said on February 15, 1980, that the United States had begun an operation to supply the insurgents with light infantry weapons, presumably rifles, light machine guns, and grenades. And the CIA, a White House source said, had been assigned to carry out the covert mission. But Washington, despite the evidence, kept denying that it was the main backer of counter-revolution in Afghanistan and stuck to the fiction that it gave only moral support to a captive people who had nobly risen to combat the Soviet invader. But with Reagan had come bravado, and bravado was to be taken a kind of honesty. The New York Times would report in May 1983 that the United States has stepped up the quantity and quality of covert military support for Afghan insurgents fighting Soviet forces and the Soviet-backed government in Kabul, according to administration officials. Beginning last December, the officials said, the Central Intelligence Agency was ordered to provide the Soviet insurgents for the first time with bazookas, mortars, grenade launchers, mines, and recoilless rifles. One official said shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles were also being supplied. Almost all the arms were said to be of Soviet manufacture. Reports that the brave Afghan guerrillas had supplied themselves with arms by taking them from the bodies of Soviet soldiers they had killed in combat here takes a knock on the head. The arms are brought to Pakistan by ship and aircraft and truck to the border areas. Saudi Arabia, and that's a monarchy by the way, and Egypt, are also said to be involved in covert support for the guerrillas. Iran is also reported to be providing a limited amount of support to the Shiite Muslims in Afghanistan. The officials said that the large portion of the arms came from the old Egyptian stockpiles of Soviet weapons and that the Saudis and the United States were paying the bills. The total cost of the operations is said to have been between $30 million and $50 million a year for the last three years, with the United States paying about half. Told that Soviet officials said in March that the United States had stepped up the arms flow to the insurgents. A senior administration official responded, good, I'm glad they're feeling it. Administration officials spoke of an internal debate on policy between what they called the bleeders or those who wanted to draw more and more Soviet troops into Afghanistan, and those who sought a more cautious approach. They said common ground was found last fall in the president's decision to increase the quantity, but more especially the quality of arms to the insurgents. There are deep doubts among administration experts about gaining the necessary unity among the Afghan insurgents for a settlement. 
let alone a basis for an agreed coalition government. QED, one would say, and that's a Latin term that basically is, you know, it is what it is. Wanted to remind everybody here, because they probably didn't know this. One of the people that they gave ammunition to that was involved with the Mujahideen was a guy by the name of Bin Laden. You should all know this. This is not an opinion, this is a fact. Google it. Bin Laden, who was supported by the Central Intelligence Agency, later was responsible, a key person, in coming back and bombing the World Trade Center, which killed a couple of thousand, hundred, uh, three or 4,000 Americans. Innocent people, by the way, who happened to be working going to work in the morning, not knowing that they were part of an international plot <laughs> that they would be taken out. So Bin Laden, so the United States has a history of doing this. Who did they give trucks to? Trucks, Ford trucks in the 1930s. A guy with a mustache who used to hang wallpaper named Adolf Hitler. They gave it to him in Germany. And then well, he used that stuff. Okay? He used it against not only the rest of Europe, but against the United States. So they have a history of looking at things temporarily. What can they do temporarily to get their agenda? Isn't it interesting that in 1930s, we were opposing fascism in the world? Now in the year 2022, who is the biggest supporter of fascism in the Ukraine? Who? The United States. So remember that. The same country that supposedly was anti-fascist is now objectively, not subjectively, but objectively pro-fascist. All the ammunition that they gave to the Mujahideen, they're now doing that to the fascist government. Of course, they don't call it the fascist government. That's the role of the media. Just the way they didn't in, during the World War II period, before that with Hitler, they never talked about all the trucks Ford, uh, capitalist Ford industry gave to the, the German fascists. So this is nothing new. Since 1945, the American government has never played a positive role any place on the planet since 1945, the end of the war. What's the first thing they did in 1947, two years after the concentration camps were opened in Europe that we saw what fascism does? What did they do, the United States? They created the Cold War. We should all know that. All the laws that were initiated... Amen. Uh, we used in Cold War, the Rosenbergs, what happened to them, the war in Korea, everything happened from the Cold War. So I just wanted to point that out, that American policymakers are very short-sighted. They look at what they can do now. Right now, the enemy is Russia. That's what the enemy is. So they'll do anything to oppose that. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you.
Thank you, comrade. And also to, to add on to that, it's not just the result of Al-Qaeda and 9-11 that came back to uh, bite us in the behind from us funding the Mujahideen. Uh, of course, uh, the Taliban taking back over as they did in 2021, uh, that's a consequence of our actions. They just did a military parade that looked like it could have been in Red Square or Washington or uh, Tiananmen Square or wherever, where it was Scud missiles and helicopters and tanks that were left over by the United States military. Uh, and this wasn't even stuff uh, that was given to them in the 1980s. It was stuff that was a combination of every invading army. They still had British Lee infield rifles. They still had Soviet tech. They still had uh, what American tech came to them in the 80s. But now you have a whole bunch of this 21st century modern American military tech that's in their hands. And if you look at them, they look like a modern army. So that's a result of our actions. And, you know, any liberal that wants to shed tears about Afghanistan now needs to realize that we're responsible for that. OK, I just want to even tag on to that. At the same time, we were hook, line and sinker in Afghanistan. We were also funneling billions of dollars of aid to Saddam Hussein because uh, in 1980, a war started between Iran uh, after the uh, Ayatollahs uh, took over Iran. Uh, they were Shiite and Saddam Hussein's government was uh, Sunni and they had a war that's lasted for about eight years and killed uh, over a million, maybe close to two million on, on, on both sides. Uh, and we basically backed uh, the man that years later we would say such an evil man, we had no problem funneling billions of dollars of arms into, you know, to, to help him fight Iran. Like I said, we're just all over the map. The money that we spend and that we waste on temporarily to back this one, to back this one, then go against this one. Unlike the, the communist government, which basically has an ideology, the United States basically looks at the way they can get their fingers in and disrupt. Hi, yes. It's actually kind of interesting uh, what a comrade was touching on in regards to Saddam Hussein in Iraq. It's a very interesting topic. It's also very complex. You'll notice in American history that America doesn't pick its enemies based on any particular group of ideals or any particular set of reactions towards allies. It's particularly if it's a conflict to business, if it's a conflict to overall capitalist profit. Saddam Hussein was a perfect example of this as he greatly pulled out of the IMF greatly pulled out of the U.S. dollar, started greatly nationalizing his country's oil, oil reserves and systems. He was, he was becoming a problem for the particularly American, European capitalist hegemony. And considering the fact that him and his nation was caught between the two uh, forces that are fighting each other, Iran and Saudi Arabia, who are perpetually stuck in this constant cold war fighting through proxies when Iraq failed 
to take over Iran, it turned its guns on Saudi Arabia. And considering that would have been a drastic problem for the business interests of the United States, the United States moved to destroy them. Thank you, comrade. And to add on to that real quick, that um, that moment in history when Iraq turns on uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and when we intervene in the Gulf War and we start, uh, you know, killing Iraqis and Kuwaitis, uh, we even did a war crime called the Highway of Death, uh, where we just rained hell on a civilian highway and killed dozens, if not hundreds of people. Uh, that was an event that actually really pissed off people like the uh, Mujahideen and Al-Qaeda, and it was one of the events that actually uh, turned Osama bin Laden against us, if I recall correctly, because we had uh, spilt Muslim blood on Muslim soil. And so, uh, you know, we will do one thing one decade to uh, prop up one faction in one country, and then we'll do something in the next that completely turns against their interests, and it ends up uh, biting us in the rear and uh, coming back on us in ways that uh, we couldn't have imagined, but that were ultimately, you know, we should have knew were going to happen you know, because of what we do. Yeah, I was just wondering if anyone could help me try to figure out like something that I seem to be, I keep noticing as far as America goes. It seems like whenever right, the right wing discovers capitalist nefariousness, they always point to like, well, if we can just remove the bad capitalists, like Bill Gates is buying up farmland, um, you know, Charles Schwab and the WEF, like all of those things. And there might, and there might be some things there, obviously they're capitalists, they're, they're doing stuff, but it always seems like they turn into kind of explaining the world through weird connections. <laughs> and and I, I don't know if that's just like a trait of individualism where they're they're ascribing those things to individual people. Like if if Twitter just gets bought up by Elon Musk, then a good capitalist is in charge. It just seems like they don't have any forward thinking about it. And how is it that if people are going to revolt against sort of like the capitalist system, but they don't recognize that capitalism is the problem, what's a better way of messaging or at least like connecting or making it more clear? that it's capitalism, not a very nefarious cabal. It's just uh, capitalism. I would like to respond to this. Um, so you're right on the mark when you say that it's a product of individualism. Uh, that is really the core driver of it, is people understand things in terms of individuals and not in terms of systems. Uh, the second thing is that it's a lack of dialectical materialism and historical materialism is a lot of what that comes down to as well, is people do not understand the development of history. They do not develop the, the understand the development of political economy. And so really a good way to kind of deal with that in people is to, for one, just point out the fact that these people did not come from nothing. People are a product of their environment. To change the people, you need to change the environment. That's something that I found very helpful in bringing people across on that. Um, the second thing is get them to understand dialectical materialism. If they are advanced enough, refer them to Stalin's text on the matter. If they're not advanced enough, explain that text in terms that they'll understand. 
Yep. Yeah. I just wanted to say that you also have to consider the capitalists are not united. They're all fighting and scurrying amongst each other for their own profits. The What you're identifying is a split between um, the upper levels, the more managerial faction of the capitalist class. These are the people inv usually involved with the big banks and finance and like international trade. That's Bill Gates. That's the World Economic Forum. And the people who are responding to that are more of like, you know, the national capitalists. They're more of the people who are involved in what little industry we have left. They're involved in fracking. They're involved in, at, at, at some level, they're involved in like big retail. So there's a divide between this more international capitalist versus like national capitalist based in America. And, you know, people identify like and say, oh, these international capitalists are doing bad things and, you know, they're destroying America. And they are. But, it, you know, it's not because they want to improve the lives of the American people, the American working class. It's just because these smaller, this smaller section of capitalists, they want to have control. They want to have power instead of this other faction. And the way that communists respond to these divisions in the capitalist class, we have to maneuver as an independent force, not supporting this faction or another, but building our own mass body and our mass politics among the people, building the trade unions, building the student movement, and building a party. Uh, so we'll go ahead and read from this. End of the war, 1992-1996, Taliban takeover. Philip Banaski's Washington secret war against Afghanistan was released in 1985, roughly six years from the start of the conflict and six years until the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union. In the whole episode of the Cold War, many counter-revolutionaries played different roles in different nations. In Afghanistan, not only did the U.S. armed and backed Mujahideen fulfill this purpose, but so did Hafizullah Amin, who was a factionalist counter-revolutionary working in direct connection with the CIA and who had probably ordered the assassination of his predecessor, a leader who he went to criminal links to oppose. In the Soviet Union itself, Mikhail Gorbachev was a counter-revolutionary who not only allowed the counter-revolution in the USSR, but also left a lone socialist Afghanistan to fight a U.S. armed guerrilla army, as well as restrain the Vietnamese invasion of Kampuchea, withdrew troops from Mongolia, and made more concessions to Western imperialists in China than winning anything for the USSR or socialism internationally. He betrayed an entire socialist world and let the American empire become the sole superpower that could now exercise its imperialism without constraint wherever it wanted in the name of peace and freedom, but in reality, in the service of corporate interests and full spectrum dominance of the U.S. empire. In Afghanistan, the patriotic stand against the Mujahideen would come to an end just as soon as the Mujahideen itself would experience its own fragmentation into factions primarily defined by ethnic groups and geography. The government of Mohammad Najibullah, the successor to Karmal, remained in power until April of 1992, as Najibullah fled to a UN compound in Kabul, where he would later be tortured and killed by the Taliban in September of 1996. The Taliban, of which many of the founding leaders had fought for the Hezb-e-Islamic Khalis or the Harakat-e-Inqalibi Islami factions of the Mujahideen, and I'm 
I truly apologize if I butchered that, uh, took power in September of 1996 after winning over several other factions in Afghanistan. From this point, the very Islamic fundamentalist government of Afghanistan was set up and a fascistic theocracy was put in place. Another faction of the old Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, sprouted up from the Mujahideen and angered by the U.S. intervention in Iraq and Kuwait in 1991, where the United States had, in their minds, spilt Muslim blood on Muslim soil, they declared their own holy jihad on the United States of America. Attacks on embassies and bases and ships would occur during the late 1990s and into 2000 and 2001. But a grand event in 2001 would prove to be one of the most important moments in both Afghanistan and America's history, an event brought on by the results of American imperialism. 9-11, 20 years war and the current state of Afghanistan. Most Americans are already aware of the September 11th attacks in the United States in 2001. Every year we're reminded of it. People alive at that time have pretty much all faced the question, where were you when 9-11 happened? Al-Qaeda struck the United States in premier centers or premier symbols of its imperialism. Two planes hit the World Trade Center towers in New York City, economic symbols of the US. One plane hit the Pentagon near DC, a military symbol of the U.S., and one that was thwarted by brave American passengers, Flight 93, was likely meant for the White House, a political symbol of the U.S. Over 2,900 people died and close to 6,000 people have died in the long term as a result of the attacks, as well as the U.S. negligence of the victims of 9-11. For a nation that hadn't seen a devastating attack on its main contiguous section, from a foreign power since 1812 and hadn't seen any large-scale warfare at home since the Civil War, this attack shocked most Americans and served as the perfect event to set the American sentiment to a sort of revenge against those responsible that would allow an explosive Pandora's box of imperial violence to open. Despite the Taliban having little to do with 9-11, the United States invaded Afghanistan on October 7, 2001. At first, the United States claimed its goal was to hunt Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and bring the purveyors of 9-11 to justice. But even within the presidency of George W. Bush, that goal was both squandered and failed as the Bush administration decided to attack it or it invade Iraq in 2003, yet another nation unresponsible for the attack. Al-Qaeda mostly managed to retreat to Pakistan and Osama bin Laden stayed there until his gruesome assassination in 2011 by Navy SEALs under the orders of the Obama administration of the United States. The Obama administration also surged the troop count in Afghanistan in this year, among further imperial ventures in Libya, Syria, Yemen, Uganda, etc. The U.S. occupation of Afghanistan lasted 20 long, grueling years. In the Trump administration, much of the same policy was carried out. The largest non-nuclear bomb was even used in 2017 on targets in Afghanistan, echoing Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a worsening right-wing America condoned the largest explosive they could get away with as a show of power. The United States intervention was finally somewhat ended by the Biden administration in August of 2021 when troops in Afghanistan were withdrawn and some bases such as Bagram Air Base 
were closed. It is worth noting that Northern cities were hit by American bombing raids even when the United States knew they would lose to the Taliban. Bombings throughout the U.S. war in Afghanistan killed mostly civilians, and these last bombings were no different. The U.S. left in a shameful display that mirrored the U.S. retreat from Saigon in 1975, as many panicked to flee from the incoming Taliban insurgency. The Taliban took power within the month and set up the old 1996 to 2001 era Islamic Emirat of Afghanistan and reestablished fascistic Islamic theocracy in Afghanistan. And the people of Afghanistan now have to deal with this old force on top of having dealt with 20 years of US military onslaught. It is also worth mentioning that the CIA is still involved in Afghanistan and the United States still conducts drone operations in Afghanistan. Today, the Afghanistan people must rise against all their imperialist and fascist oppressors, and we must engage in solidarity with their revolution. The legacy of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan must be continued and socialism must come to Afghanistan again. We stand with the Afghan people in this struggle and stand first and foremost against US imperialism in the region, as well as the Taliban theocracy that is taken hold again. Let us as Americans avenge the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan and stand in solidarity with the Afghan people and all those resisting fascism and imperialism across the world. And before I get back to the next list of questions and comments, one of the things that I wanted to clarify at the end there is I may have made it look at the end like now somehow, you know, because the American empire is out of Afghanistan, things are going to get worse and we might want to come back. No, that's not the solution at all. Uh, things seem to be just as worse under the Taliban as they are under American imperialism. And that occupation was one of the most bloodiest episodes in the last 50 years. Uh, so what we really do want to see in Afghanistan is the same sort of thing that happened with the Tsar revolution, just executed better. The Dulles brothers are who I would call the architects of international American anti-communism uh, because they were John and Alan Dulles. Uh, so John Dulles, he was a Republican politician who did, among other roles, he served as the secretary of state under Eisenhower. And he was big in favor of massive retaliation against Soviet, quote unquote, aggression and building Cold War alliances. He wrote the preamble to the United Nations Charter. He was instrumental in growing NATO. Uh, he was involved in the 1953 Iranian coup and the 1954 Guatemalan coup. He violated the Geneva Accords and supported South Vietnam. Uh, so that's some of the stuff that John Dulles was responsible for. And then Alan Dulles was the longest serving director in history of the CIA. And he was responsible for stuff like the Bay of Pigs invasion, MK Ultra. He was responsible for the Iranian coup, the Guatemalan coup. He was involved in that along with his brother. He uh, worked with the Lockheed U-2 aircraft program. He was a member of the Warren Commission, which was investigating the nice. JFK assassination, interestingly enough. Um, so anyways, that's what I wanted to expand on was those two, because that's very important information to understand in our history. The second thing that I want to talk about is 
we were involved in Afghanistan for so long. We put so much money, sacrificed so many lives. And then when we finally pulled out in 2021, when we finally pulled out, we installed a government there that lasted less than a month. For frame of reference, Chaz out in Seattle, a autonomous zone set up by anarchists in the middle of a riot lasted longer. They were able to build something that lasted longer than the U.S. government did with decades and billions of dollars. That is how pathetic the U.S. involvement in that region was and the type of lasting effect that it had. Um, And then the third and final thing that I wanted to say is that while the Taliban is by no means good, national sovereignty is a prerequisite for socialism. And so American involvement not being in Afghanistan is objectively a good thing uh, because it sets the conditions for more progressive uh, forms of the state. Really quickly, another fact to add on about the uh, Dulles brothers is that they had worked for this firm Sullivan and Cromwell uh, that was actually working with and colluding with the German enemy, getting them stuff like uh, Ford's vehicles, the kind of equipment to make sure their trains run, ran on time. Alan and, and John Dulles were both very much in favor of Nazi Germany and tried to help them out as much as possible. And then avenge them after uh, World War II by participating so hard in the Cold War and supporting a whole bunch of uh, fascist governments and neo-Nazi remnants. Since 1994, opium uh, production has been steadily on the rise in Afghanistan um, around the time when uh, the Gulf Wars began. And it really spiked up after the war in Afghanistan when the Americans uh, entered Afghanistan. So just uh, just uh, saying that because uh, opium is also used to destabilize communities too you know, further exploit those working people. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that fact in too. What I want to say about the opium in Afghanistan is it seems like we it, it rise when we had the occupation in Afghanistan and it also has been coming more recently from cartels that we support in Mexico. And so forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think that the CIA is behind a lot of what we see with the fentanyl epidemic here. My dad had died a couple of years ago because of a fentanyl overdose and it gets into everything. And I think that it's a way to destabilize communities and you know, make sure working class people aren't engaged in the struggle. So, and they did the same thing with crack in uh, poor communities in the eighties. So there's a precedent for it. To add on to that opium point, the Taliban actually outlawed opium in 2000. So the fact that opium production skyrocketed as the U.S. went in and it corresponded with the opium epidemic is not is not a coincidence. Uh, but the, the one point I wanted to make before that was in that last part of the reading, they mentioned the 6,000 after everything was said and done with 9-11 deaths. Most of that was because the U.S. did not want to spend money on PPE and they lied and told responders that it was safe to breathe the air in the World Trade Center. That was all. On Afghanistan, it happened during my years that I growing up. We had beautiful things. Women were now allowed to go to the university during the socialist building, Afghanistan, 
under the leadership of the People's Democratic uh, Party. Education was free. The issue of healthcare was free. The socialist countries came in and helped, especially Cuba sent doctors, Czechoslovakia sent hospital equipment. So actually Afghanistan was coming out of the Middle Ages, not just in the city of Kabul, but also in the other cities and in the other rural areas. To find out more about that, I suggest you Google and look for copies of New World Review. That was the name of the magazine that reported on what was going on. New World Review. The uh, person who wrote the article was a woman named Marilyn. Marilyn was the first name. Bechtel, B like in boy, E, C like in cat, H, T like in Thomas, E, L. And she wrote articles on that. I suggest you go back to primary sources from 1980 and see the the beautiful articles with pictures, with pictures, photographs, okay? Uh, try to find out how you can get them. I have the whole volume of the magazine here. Uh, it used to be called Soviet Russia Today. So you could see where the magazine was coming from. In 1945, it changed to New World Review, meaning that the building of socialism in Eastern Europe, the people's democracies, as we call them. That was the new world. So it changed from Soviet Russia today to New World Review. That's all I wanted to say about Afghanistan. You should do some of your own research and go to primary sources. Thank you.